0: Oh, good evening, church. Some of you were just taken aback. I did not smoke a pack of cigarettes today. That's not why I sound like this. If you're new, I do not sound like this normally. Here's what happened. God told me, be quiet. And the way that he told me that was he took away my voice. So this week for literally two days, I like, could not utter a single word. But I still in faith wrote the sermon. And when I woke up this morning, I could speak like this, and I felt like, God, you open the door. I'm a preacher, I'm going to speak, even if it sounds like this. So I'm going to ask for your grace tonight to uh, focus your attention, to listen in, despite my lack of uh, ability to communicate as normal. But here's the great truth: We do not trust in the preacher's ability to enunciate or pause or not have a hoarse voice. We trust in the Spirit to apply the word, right? Amen? Okay, so, but you're gonna have to engage with me a little bit. I can't be up here, horse, all alone. So, amen, are you ready? There we go, thank you. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Carter Brown. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. They call me Horsey, that's my nickname. I'm a dad, so I had to throw a dad joke in there. And I may turn around for hot tea. Someone in the back said, try lemon. I said, okay. I've tried about everything possible this week, uh, and here we are. But we're in episode four of our series entitled Forward Living. We started this at the beginning of the year uh, to jump into the book of Joshua and look at selections of this story, this great account of how God worked in the life and the history of his people Israel to see how we might begin a new year, how we might be people learning from the past and living Not in the future, but for the future, people of forward living faith. And so tonight, the episode is called God is Serious. Do you believe it? Yes, He is. If you don't, He still is. And we're gonna see that in chapter seven of the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. I say this every week, but I'm really gonna encourage it this week because of the voice. If you download our app and you click on the notes icon, you'll have all the notes that I've placed there. So if you're like, I don't know what he said, it's there in the notes. So you can go with me and move through the sermon. But we're going to jump right into verse 1, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what God's word says to us. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan The son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This verse, verse 1, is a setup for what is about to happen. So what we know so far, just in the very first verse, is that Achan has done something wrong. He's taken the devoted things. We'll find out what that is later. And we know that his action has caused God's anger to burn, but not just against Achan, but against all of God's people. So here are some of the things we have to process. Okay, what exactly did Achan do? Why is God's anger burning? Why is everybody involved? Why is God angry at everyone even though it very clearly says that Achan is the one who sinned? And do they even know what Achan has done? We know as the reader, but do they know? See, they don't know yet what has happened. And that's why this verse is a setup for you to understand what transpires in the following verses. So God's people, as we saw last week, have just come off a great victory. God has given them the promised land they finally crossed the Jordan, and before them was Jericho, the great and daunting walls of the city of Jericho. And God told them, if you trust me, you will see the walls come down. How are the walls going to come down? They're going to march around it. They're going to blow a ram's horn. They're going to shout over a period of seven days. They trust God. They follow that, and the walls come down. They are victorious, first nation ever to conquer Jericho. And so they're feeling great. I mean, they're riding high. They feel like, what's next? Here we go. we got to keep going, moving into the promised land. God, where do you want us to conquer? Where are we going? What are you going to fulfill? We can't wait to see what you're going to do. And so next up is a city named Ai. And so they're like, okay, what are we going to do here? And so Joshua says, listen, kind of let's follow the same script, but we're not going to do the whole walking around with the ram's horns and all that kind of stuff. We're just going to send some spies, like they did before, to see what the deal is with AI. So they send some spies out. They go into this other encampment. And they report back. And the report is, hey, listen. It's not like, it's not Jericho. This is a small town. We don't need a lot of people. The spies are like, listen, we don't need the full army. We just need like a few thousand men, maybe. Like, we'll get it done. Joshua's like, Bet. No big deal. Let's get the the men. We'll get a couple thousand people. We'll send them out. We'll conquer. We'll keep moving. They send them out. While they are there, there's a horrible defeat. Israel is destroyed. They have to flee and return. They come back after riding high thinking nothing can stop them. They just conquered Jericho, but they lose this small encampment of Ai. And it says this. It says that the hearts of the people melted. And became as water. They were feeling great. And now this little city destroys them. And so Joshua, who is the leader of God's people, is distraught. He goes before the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where the presence of God dwelled. So he goes before the presence of God. And he goes in prayer. And his prayer is kind of like this. Hey God, what's going on? You promised us that you were going to protect us, that we should not fear, that you are going to give all the enemies into our hands, that whatever we put our foot down, that's where we would settle and find victory. And this little encampment has just destroyed us and we're we're melting here. Our hearts are heavy. Why has this happened? And God responds to Joshua in verse 11, chapter 7. It says this, Israel ascend. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So two things here. One is the devoted things are the spoils of battle. In particular, gold, silver, bronze, iron, these type of metals and so the, the command by God was to take the devoted things, these spoils of battle, and to keep them in the treasury of the Lord. Because what God wanted to keep at bay and, and keep Israel from engaging in is once a town is conquered, it's just every man for himself to try to garner as much wealth as they can, as they take and plunder, creating inequality creating all types of class systems, all types of division among God's people. And so God's command is when you conquer a town, when you conquer a city, the devoted things are devoted to me. They're devoted to the house of the Lord. And so this would have done two things. It would have kept this kind of injustice and inequality at bay among God's people. But it also would have supported the ministry In the work of the tabernacle. You see, there was no temple at this point. No physical structure that was set where everybody would come and worship and sing and come before God's presence. They were a set up and tear down church. Can I get an amen? And they were not only set up and tear down like we are. They were mobile. So they were always moving. And so there were priests and all types of people that worked in the tabernacle to move the place of worship for God's people wherever they went. To protect the Ark of the Covenant. To uphold all of the very specific statutes and instructions that God gave his people of how to erect the tabernacle and how it should look. And these devoted things would help to support the ministry and the work of this set up and tear down church. This mobile church. And so God says to Joshua, here's the deal. Israel sinned. They've taken the devoted things and kept them for themselves. They've taken what is to be devoted to me and sought to enrich themselves. See, God is essentially saying that the key to victory, if if you want to find victory among my promises to you, holiness is required. A pursuit of righteousness, a trusting in my commandments, a believing in what I say, and a seeking after that. You can't turn from what I say and expect for me to back your U-turn. It's not how it works. And so God says to Joshua, what you need to do is to get up and consecrate yourself and all the people. You need to begin a refining process. And this refining process that happens among Israel in Joshua chapter 7 is the same type of refining process that we are to go through. It has three stages. It's first to identify the sin, then to confess and repent. So Joshua begins this. Now, the way that this is going to look is that he begins an investigation. Because what Joshua knows is that someone, or maybe multiple people, have taken these devoted things, this gold and silver bronze or iron, and they've kept it for themselves, and they've broken God's commandment. So holiness has now been removed from God's people. They're not pursuing collectively righteousness any longer, hence why they were defeated. And so he begins to go tribe by tribe, investigating, figuring out who has stolen these things from God, who has broken the commandment. And it goes tribe by tribe, family to family, and it eventually centers on one person, there was only one person. His name was Achan. Joshua comes up him. he's like, what did you do? And he responds in verse 20. Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver. And a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted and took them and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Here's what Achan says. He's like, listen, here's the deal. I know what we're supposed to do. God said take all these things, our devoted things, devoted to him, pursue righteousness, trust his commands. But listen, when I saw the cloak... The silver and the gold, I thought to myself, I want these things. I coveted them. I had to have them. So I took them. Here's his sin. He got greedy. He got greedy. And this was his great sin. He believed the lie that he could enrich himself at the expense of God and others. He believed that the future that he imagined when he saw these things was better than the future that God promised if he would just follow God's commands. He thought, that's silly. Why would I put these things in the treasury of the Lord? They have enough. But if I take these things, I'm going to be looking good. I'm going to have a lot of money. I'm going to be able to distance myself among everybody else. You see... Achan is not just a random person. He is of the tribe of Judah, and he's a prominent leader in the community. We know that because at the very beginning, in verse one that we read at the front, it lists off the different ancestors that Achan has. And it's speaking to the fact that he is a prominent figure in the society, he is a role model, and he is greedy. And what made his sin so bad? A cloak, some gold, some silver. It's this. It's that he stole from God to enrich himself. He stole from God to enrich himself. You see, righteousness or goodness on Achan's part would have been to see those things and be like, oh, wow, I I really would love to take those. My heart is, is coveting after these, but... God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your command. You've promised to sustain me. You've promised to enrich me. You've promised to flourish, bring flourishing in my life. So I'm going to take these things, even though I want to keep them and hide them. And I'm going to bring them to your treasury. That's righteousness. Unrighteousness is exactly what he did, is to say, I see these things. I covet these things. God, I don't really trust what you have promised Even though I've seen you take down the walls of Jericho, I don't really trust. I think it's better if I follow my path. Unrighteousness. Unfaithfulness. See, from this passage, there are two core lessons that are rising up. It's going to deal with two core lessons. The first one is this. It's the relationship between greed and trust. Greed and trust. Trust. Greed, I want to argue, stems from an inability to trust. It stems from an inability to trust. Now, we here in this room know that greed is most commonly associated with selfishness. It's, I want to keep. I want to hoard. I don't want to share. Selfishness. And that's why most people do not recognize themselves to be selfish or greedy. If I were to say, raise your hand in this room, if you're greedy, how many of you are going to raise your hand? I would bet zero. How many times have you been maybe in a small group, in a community group, a Bible study, or just a collection of friends, and maybe you guys are talking about things that you're struggling with, things that are happening. How many times has somebody said, I'm real greedy? I've been, I've heard that said zero times, but maybe it's because I'm the pastor. Maybe that's why. But I hear pride, I hear you know, deception, all types of other things, but greed its not readily admitted. I think in large part because we associate greed only with selfishness and we don't believe that the reason that we withhold or we lack generosity is selfish. But I want to tell you that greed I think stems from an inability to trust because Greed is really associated with self protection. Where greed really stems from is the mentality and the lie that if I keep and if I withhold, I'm protecting myself and my family and my future. See, greed is identified not only with selfishness, but really primarily. With self-protection. It's why we may say things like this, I don't have any time or margin in my schedule for you or for that because I need to protect my schedule. Or why we say the reason that I'm not generous with my finances in this season of my life is because I need to protect my family's savings and future. Or I need to protect my financial goals. Many people, especially around finances, are like, I'll be generous later when I have a surplus. But right now i got to protect my vision, my future, my family, and my goals. Some of us in the office space say, well, I, I don't want to be generous with my words or with my faith and sharing it with my coworkers or my superiors or those I lead or my friends because... I need to protect my job and my reputation. See, greed is more associated with self-protection, I think, than even selfishness. The belief that we need to protect our own life and our own future, and it stems from a lack of trust in what God says. I mean, God's pretty clear on who we are to be as people, especially in the realm of generosity. I mean, the Bible is chock full of what it looks like to be a generous person. The truth is, we don't give because we don't trust. Here's what God says about generosity, just a few things. If you see another brother or sister in need, give what you can to them. Carry one another's burdens. Share, speaking about your faith, with others. Whoever shuts their ears to the poor will also cry out and not be answered. The generous will be blessed. It's better to give than receive. The one who freely gives gains even more. I mean, God is clear. Be generous. Your whole life, everything that is yours has been given to you by God for you to steward with a posture of generosity, trusting that when you give, it's better. When you give of your time or your talent or your treasure or your words or your faith or your resource, whatever it may be, It's better. You actually receive more. You see, the invitation from God is to trust that when you give, you are actually protecting yourself. While greed is the opposite. It's believing the lie of self-protection. Here's what generosity does. It ushers you and me into a deeper trust in God's provision and his purposes for you. It ushers you into a deeper trust in God's provision and his purposes for you. It causes you to have to live out those those statements from God that it's better to give than receive. That the person that freely gives gains even more. And I think if we're honest, all of us in this room, we can identify with Achan. With that idea of protecting our future. And knowing what God says, but then coveting something and taking it for ourselves. Now, you may not have a coat and silver and gold hidden under the rug in your apartment or under your house. But I would bet to say, all of us in this room, I'm including myself, there are things that we withhold. There are things that we keep back, that we hide away. And then we... Posture, our, posture ourselves differently than maybe that greed that stems from within us. You see, what Aiken's not doing here is he's not walking around the camp with a coat on, you know. He's not like, hey, look at me. Got a couple money. You know, am I buying a new tent? He's not flaunting. Oftentimes we associate greed with flaunting. Flexing, you know what I mean? Driving around. Renting those cars that look like Batmobiles. Like a thousand of them. You know what I mean? Like they're all rentals. We know it. But you're still riding with the music loud. You're like, I'm not that. But like Achan, we can be greedy. All of us. Because there are things that we withhold. That we hide. Put it here. No only let anyone know. Because we covet. And there are things that look good. And we think promise a better future than what God says. You see... There's a reason that at this church, during the time of giving, we speak about giving in three ways. We speak about giving of your time, and your talent, and your treasure. Because we believe generosity is holistic. It's not just related to money. It's related to giving your time. It's related to giving your talents and serving. It's, it's stewarding your whole life and saying, God, I trust you with everything you've given me. I trust what you say about the power and beautiful result of generosity. So I'm gonna step into generosity. And I'm gonna believe God that this is not an obligation, but it's an act of worship. You see, when you give of your time, your talent, your treasure, you are worshiping God. And you are engaging in a privilege. Generosity is a privilege because God says when you give, it's better. It's better to give than to receive. Those who give gain even more. And when you give and you're worshiping, it's literally saying, God, I trust you with this. I'm giving this time. I trust you. I'm giving my talents. I trust you. I'm giving my treasure. I trust you. It pushes down greed. Pushes it deep down. Saying, God, I'm not going to hold anything. I'm not going to hide anything. Let me, let me uncover what I've been withholding. This is for you, for the work of your kingdom and your gospel. This is relationship here between greed and trust. Achan, who covets, is greedy and chooses self-protection over trust in God's protection. It causes God's anger to burn. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is a connection actually to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where it says that God is an all-consuming fire. And what we see in Scripture is there's two aspects to God being an all-consuming fire. There's more, but two primary ones. The first one is that God being a consuming fire warms you with his love. When you come around God, it's like when you sit around a fire on a cold night. If you follow me on Instagram, you know when it's 68 degrees, I make a fire. Because I'm from South Florida. And I warm around that fire. And the love of God is a consuming fire. It warms you with his love. But God is also a consuming fire who burns against sin. He is holy. He is righteous. There is no tolerating of sin and unrighteousness in his presence. And this truth is developed by by this connection that happens in this passage between another key figure that we read about in the beginning of the first few chapters of Joshua. Where we see the warming of God's love versus what we see with Achan, the burning against sin. We see that between Achan and Rahab. Rahab is a woman who lives in Jericho. She is a prostitute. She runs a brothel. But she believes in the God of scripture. She believes that she can be warmed with his love. That she should trust him. And so when the spies come into Jericho, she generously, literally gives of her life. There's a chance that she could be found out and murdered. She puts her life on the line to hide the spies. Helps them escape. And when God gives Jericho over to Israel... As a result of her betraying her own people and trusting in God and aligning herself with God's people, she's saved and her whole family is too. She's warmed with the love of God, the acceptance and grace and forgiveness of God. And then we have Aiken. I mean, he's born and raised in the set up and tear down church. He's been with God's people his whole life. He just saw God bring down the walls of Jericho. But when he sees that cloak and that silver and that gold and his heart starts to covet, he's like, you know what? I do know best. And he betrays God's people and he betrays God and he takes and he hides. And the result is his life is destroyed and his family's life is destroyed. Seems harsh, right? I mean, he coveted, yes, not good. He sinned, not good. He was greedy, not good. But does he deserve to be destroyed? And here's the second lesson. And it's the uncomfortable one for us as Westerners. And that's this. God is serious about holiness. Serious about it. He is serious about holiness. So serious that one man is the offender, Achan, but everyone is guilty. Think about that. God's anger burns against all of Israel. Whoa, they didn't do anything. They took the devoted things, maybe they coveted it, but they gave them to the treasury of the Lord. One man's sin causes God's anger to burn against all of them. Why? Why is that? It's because Achan's sin robbed the whole nation of its pursued purity. The key to victory was their reliance on God, their devotion to God, their trusting and following in God's commands. It was their pursuit of holiness. And because Achan decided to take a U-turn, it destroyed that pursuit for all of them. It's like making cookies and you're making the batter and you have one rotten egg and you're like... It's just one. And you crack it in and you mix it up. Like the whole thing's bad now. God's serious about holiness. There's impurity in the camp. There's a lack of righteousness in the camp. And this brings out the second dimension of how God is serious about holiness. This is another thing that we as Westerners have a hard time here, at least in America, understanding. And that's this. Corporate guilt and individual responsibility go hand in hand. Now, if you are a byproduct of the enlightenment and enlightenment thinking, you elevate the individual. It's what we do in this country. We elevate individual responsibility, and rightly so. But what we diminish is corporate responsibility or corporate guilt. We're okay with corporate guilt as long as everyone involved is somehow complicit. If if everyone goes down, then it's okay as long as everyone has some type of connection to it. And yet, here in scripture, we see a very different reality. A much more nuanced reality between individual responsibility and corporate guilt. I want you to consider the call of the church. All throughout scripture, we see this kind of jarring if you really look at it, call to how we are to view ourselves and each other. For instance, we are told that we are to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. So even if you are not in a state of mourning, if a brother or sister is in a state of mourning, you are to enter that space with them and be joined with them. Even if you don't feel like rejoicing and praising if there's a brother or sister that is in a place of rejoicing and praising, you enter that space with them and you praise and you rejoice. Why? Because the Apostle Paul sh- spreads this out across all of his letters, but very clearly in 1 Corinthians, he says, we are one. He says that we are one body. We have one spirit, one Lord. And then listen, one faith. One baptism. Uh, This is kind of jarring, right? Because as an individual, you have an individual body. You have the Holy Spirit that's personal and living within you as an individual. Jesus is your Lord. When you pray, you pray to a personal God who is personal to you as an individual. You have your own individual faith. You are not saved by the collective faith. You have to have your own faith. And you have your own baptism experience. Powerful, meaningful. But yet, you are linked to the brothers and sisters in Christ where you are one faith, one baptism, one body, one Lord, one spirit. Why? Because the church isn't a collection of individuals who gather for worship and programs. That's not the church. The church is a community of individuals that form a collective, like a spider's web. As the Apostle Paul says, a body. You are a collection of individuals who form a corporate entity, a body. And when one mourns, you mourn. When one rejoices, you rejoice because you are linked. And this also connects not just in the tears of struggle or the joy of success, but also in struggles, in sin, in brokenness. Again, consider the Apostle Paul. He writes to the church in in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, and he writes to everyone, but he addresses individual sins. He speaks about individual situations that are involving just a few people. And he says something like this, a little leaven... Leavens the whole lump. So wait, wait. He's writing to the church and he's speaking to all of them for all of them to learn and grow and confess and repent. And he speaks about sins that are applicable only to a few people or even one person. But the whole church is supposed to confess and repent. Why? Because individual responsibility And corporate guilt go hand in hand. See, what's happened for us in 2023, in the American church in particular, I want to speak to other churches, we've lost our corporate identity. And so, we've lost corporate responsibility. And naturally, we have lost corporate confession and corporate repentance. We've lost this. It's one of the great plagues of the American church is the belief that we're really just a collection of individuals that have come together to consume content that we individually need. So we go to church because I need to hear a word, or I need to praise, or I need to see so-and-so, or I need a community. Now, these are great things. You're still an individual. God needs to speak a word to you. You need to praise. You need to find community. You need to see friends. These are all great things. But you're Your faith is bigger than your individual spiritual experience. You're to be part of a body. And how you engage that body matters. I want to ask a question. When is the last time that you have prayed a prayer of confession and repentance for sins that you did not commit but you see the larger church committing? When is the last time that you sat in a conversation and received judgments upon the church that are not true of you, but are true from that person's perspective and the people they've interacted with? Oftentimes our defense is like, well, that's not me. Like, don't say that to me. But we are not just me. We are us There's a corporate identity and corporate responsibility and corporate confession and corporate repentance. Now, don't hear me say this, please, okay? I'm not saying individual responsibility doesn't matter. It does matter. That's why Achan receives a very specific punishment. And it's far worse because he's the one that committed the sin. But all of Israel has to confess and repent, they have to restore the devoted things back to the treasury of the Lord. They have to once again collectively pursue holiness. They need to learn from this. They need to grow from this. God takes holiness very seriously. So much so he connects us to one another that it's not just about our individual faith, but it's about us. How we, his church, his body lives and engages the world how we trust or distrust his commandments. See, the same God of Israel in the 13th century BC, which is when this takes place, is the same God of 2023 AD. Same God takes holiness seriously. And we, his people, the church, we are to pursue holiness individually and can you guess what it is? Corporately. We are to pursue righteousness. We are to pursue holiness. We are to confess and repent. We are to listen and respond because we are attached together. We're to be serious about unrighteousness that is identified with the body of Christ and repent of it for we're identified as one, even if it's not our specific unrighteousness. In the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches. And they're Messages that are kind of, they're boiled down to one statement. One identity marker for the whole church. He speaks collectively. Here's what he says to five of them, okay. Ephesus, you abandon your love for Christ. Pergamum, you have compromised your beliefs. Thyatira, you followed false prophets. Sardis, you're spiritually dead. Laodicea. You are lukewarm in your faith. Now, when Jesus makes these statements about these churches, are those statements true of every single person in the church? I don't think so. But they're true of enough that it is the identifying marker given to the church. I don't think that means that every single person in those churches is not a person of faith, or every single person is spiritually dead, or every single person won't see Christ in eternity. But it does mean that the church has been identified as something that is unbecoming. It is an identifier of unrighteousness that they need to confess and repent of. It's a call to those churches to confess and repent. And it's not just the people that are committing those things or believing false prophets or spiritually dead. It's to the whole church. Don't be identified this way. You're corporate, not just individuals. You see how you engage the church matters, friends. How you live your life as an individual matters from Monday through Saturday. How you engage the body of Christ on a Sunday and throughout the week matters. How you live matters because you're to see the church not as a place to consume, but a people to commit to confess with and cultivate community with. You see, we are to be in a place of individuals forming a collective knowing we rise and fall together. Here's a question I want to ask you. It's an important one. That's why I wanted to preach this despite this. What would would be said of Crossbridge Brickle? What's the message? What Message, are we building on the lips of others? Not just when people come to a service on Sunday night. But how the people of God interact with other people in the city. How we live life with one another throughout the week. What we accept. Who we accept. What kind of culture and values and beliefs and promises do we trust and follow? What would be said of our church? What is said of our church? Because I'll tell you this. There are two other churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus speaks to. And they have a very different message. The church of Philadelphia says this. You have patiently endured despite your trials and weaknesses. Or Smyrna, you have remained faithful amidst persecution. We at Crossbridge are pursuing these messages. Endurance, reliance on God, faithfulness. We want to be a people that are pursuing holiness. Listen, we are not pursuing numbers. We are not pursuing prestige. We are not pursuing anything but holiness. Following God. Relying on God. Being faithful. We want to be a community. When people say, oh, you go to Crossbridge, Brickell, they love the city. They love people. They welcome all people. They're serious about their faith. They're not judgmental. They're warm. They want, when I come in, I feel warmed with love. So many more messages we could say, but this is who we are to be. We want to be people that are pursuing holiness. You know what holiness means? It means to be set apart. I hope that we do not live as people that look like everybody else Monday through Saturday. The only difference is we go to church on Sunday when they're watching Netflix for real are we living set apart and here's my question to you will you engage that will you pursue that not just as an individual but corporately with us will you live generously trusting in God's provision and his promises will you pursue holiness and here's what I want to tell you and this is the great news this is the good news you can pursue generosity and you can pursue holiness with freedom. You know why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake he made him to be, a, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? The connection between the individual and The collective. Because of one man's act and work, the whole is saved. Read it again with me. For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin. But he knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are made righteous even though we are unrighteous. Because he was righteous. Praise God that the individual and the corporate are connected. Because that is the backbone of our faith. That we as the body of Christ, the people of God, are forgiven and loved and warmed with the Father's love. Because he took the burning anger of God the Father on the cross for our sin. God is serious about holiness. He's so serious about holiness that he sent his only son to die so that we might live set apart and with him for eternity. He's serious about holiness. His anger burns against sin, but your sin was paid for, friend. Your shame and your guilt was paid for. Your coveting the cloak and the lifestyle, it was paid for. So you can live generous. You can pursue holiness. You can live set apart. You can say, hey, you know what, after tonight... This could be a new week. I'm gonna rely on you, God. I'm gonna pursue holiness and generosity with freedom. So tonight, no, because of Christ, the individual that gave corporate effects, that you do not have a God who's burning against you because of your sin or mine. He wants to warm you with his love, but he calls us to refinement, to confession and repentance, and growth to pursue holiness because the key to victory is holiness. It's living set apart. It's trusting what God says. Amen? I want to close this sermon by reading uh, together a corporate uh, prayer of confession and repentance. This comes from the book of Common Prayer and it's an ancient prayer that I want to invite you Uh, to read aloud with me, because we are one. And so we confess and repent together as one as well. So will you read this with me? Almighty God, who does freely pardon all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart and promise of redeeming grace, forgiving all our sins, and cleansing us from an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you continue in prayer with me?